Yeah, good morning. This is a great day. Turn to Luke chapter 12 as we continue our series through the book of Luke and especially the parables of Luke, which we call the storyteller. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 12 uh, at, a, at a story that grows out of a context that we actually looked at last week as well as Ryan uh, took us into the parables of Luke 12. There's always an outline provided. By the way, if you're new, you may want to get used to pulling this out. It'll definitely help you track as you listen this morning. But good morning. Welcome to Seacoast. My name is Pastor Dale. I'm one of the Seacoast pastors here and honored to be part of the uh, teaching team with Pastor Ryan and others. So it's a joy to be here. You know, Luke chapter 12 is a fascinating, but I find it, for my life at least, a real challenging passage. This past week, uh, Becky and I uh, had the privilege of uh, being with a young couple that we met, that we took to dinner. In fact, here's their picture. Uh, And the reason is they're holding those strange mugs that say DTS alumni. And part of the things that I do, apart from my time here at Seacoast is Becky and I have a ministry focused on trying to train and equip and encourage pastors both here and in Africa. And we had, uh, we had never met this couple before, Craig and Castine. But Carl, excuse me, see I don't know them that well. Excuse me, as they'll probably be listening to this message. But Carl and Castine um, uh, have become friends after this week and we hope to stay in touch with them. They don't live here. They were down here on vacation. We learned they'd be in Oceanside. That was close enough to say, let us take you out to dinner. We had heard their story a little bit because they've been a pastor for over the last 20 years of a small church up in Santa Rosa. As soon as I say Santa Rosa, a lot of people probably know what's coming because last October, uh, they took their two kids They took two of their four kids, at least, about 30 minutes away to the nearest beach to camp at the beach overnight. It was about 1.30 in the morning that they got a phone call from their daughter that was still at their house. And basically, the daughter, in a very panicked voice, said, Dad, I don't know what's going on, but there is smoke everywhere, and it seems to be really bad, and I'm really scared, and what should we do? And like most parents, their first thought as they thought about their home, there's a picture of their home and the truck that they had driven to the beach, sitting on the driveway, actually, in this picture. It was in a beautiful community. It was their dream home, uh, a beautiful lot. They showed me some other pictures of it. They had built their dream home. They had paid off the mortgage just a few months earlier. So here's their dream home here in Santa Rosa, paid off, fully full and packed with really about 30 years of marital memories. They told their kids just to get out of there as quick as they could. And with hindsight, that was good advice because this is what they returned to the next day. This is the first picture they took when they returned back to their home the next day after the fire. The Santa Rosa fires... um, I think set a new record, actually, for numbers of homes destroyed in just a a few days and a few weeks as they were hard to contain. But it hit their neighborhood of tightly packed, beautiful homes and literally destroyed every single home in their neighborhood. 
They told me that uh, normally it takes several hours to lose a home. The homes in their neighborhood burned to the ground in less than 30 minutes. Because of the 50 mile per hour winds that were driving this firestorm that hit that night, they told me that the, the firemen told them the average home fire goes up to about 1,000 degrees. They estimate that the homes in their neighborhood were over 2,000 degrees as they burned so quickly. They even pointed out that uh, several of their neighbors had fireproof safes. But fireproof safes are not rated for that kind of temperature, so it even melted the contents in their fireproof safes in their homes. What did they lose? Here's a picture of what they were able to get from the wreckage. One copper pot, three pieces of pottery. That's it. Everything else was lost. Every other possession was lost. All their photos, all their wedding photos, all their instruments. They were a very musical family. Their piano. It especially kind of touched my heart when um, Castine shared with Becky and I that uh, her mother had died when she was only 19 years old. And just the week before this, her father, who's... Um, probably approaching the end of life, decided it was time to pass off her mother's journals to Castine. She said she opened the journal and read the story about the day she was born. And she thought, I've got to read the rest of these stories, the life of my mother. And she set it aside to come back and read another day. So everything, was lost. Here's a picture of their car that they took to the beach. Here's a picture of their main beautiful SUV. It was parked on the driveway. The liquid that looks like it's flowing from it is actually hardened on the driveway. That's their extra custom aluminum rims that they were so excited about ordering on the SUV. The rims just melted and flowed down the driveway. Today, this is their lot. This is Castine standing in front of their lot today after they scraped, scraped it down and all that's left is a lot full of ashes. Now, this was their home. And the good news is it will be rebuilt. They did have insurance. They also told me, Dale, if you talk to anybody about our story, you have permission to share our story, tell them to check the coverage on possessions. They were dramatically underinsured on their possessions. No way they can replace even half of what they lost. But you know, it's been a journey for them this year as followers of Jesus Christ trying to process. What's it really mean to lose everything? Now, they're so thankful that the things like their children were not lost. But what's it mean to lose literally everything else that you own except the clothes you take to the beach? And she was quick to point out, you know what clothes we take to the beach? <laughs> yeah, it's that stuff that you don't care getting really dirty around the campfire. So they took some of their old clothes to the beach to camp, but apart from their camping clothes and the vehicle they were driving, everything else is lost. 
They didn't even tell their kids to grab this, grab that, because they were more concerned about losing them, and that matters more. You know, and, and I just, as I, as, as I met with them and had dinner with them, I'm going home every day working on the sermon for this morning about worry and about money and about possessions. And I thought, wow, that would be a challenge. That would be a challenge. Because I'd like to think that Becky and I hold our possessions lightly, and if we lost everything, we'd still be okay as long as we had our, especially our kids in Christ. And, but, you know, I, I think I would really struggle with that. Fact of the matter is, for most of us, money matters. Possessions matter. Uh, it matters to all of us to some degree. We all have things that we love. We all have things that we'd hate to lose. Uh, you know, it's, it's a fact that at least I'm, I've just got to admit, it's hard for me to think of losing everything that you spend your life collecting and valuing and things that represent lifelong memories. As you look at the teachings of Jesus, um, Jesus actually talked a lot about possessions. He talked a lot about money. He talked a lot about things. But yet Jesus lived the most simplistic lifestyle. Jesus certainly wasn't a man addicted to money, so why did Jesus talk about money a lot? And here's, I've said this to you once before, so you may remember it, but when I think about it, it's like this. Jesus cared about money because Jesus cared about people. Jesus knew people care about money. We do care about our things. We get too attached by them. Sometimes money begins to, and possessions become something that we don't just own them, they begin to own us. And, and so this morning what we're talking about is how do we have a healthy relationship with this thing called money, with this, these things called possessions that money represents and that money buys. And, and not just money, but all that it provides. You know, last week, Ryan introduced this Luke 12 section and this parable last week. And the backdrop for last week, just to remind you, because context always matters whenever we look at parables. Our teaching team's been talking about that. So remember the context. The context was two people that were about to become, if not already, very wealthy. They were looking at a good-sized inheritance. And as they were looking at receiving an inheritance earlier in this chapter, they got in a conflict over the inheritance and how big of a piece of the pie each of them are going to get. And, and they came to Jesus and said, Jesus, tell, would you resolve this inheritance issue? Would you be our judge? Would you resolve this? And Jesus, instead of resolving their surface issue of the inheritance, went to the heart of the matter. And he dealt with things like greed. He dealt with the danger of greed. And we saw that last week. If you missed that message, go online and listen to it. Great message. But now today, we're going to move out of the same context to a second major issue. Because today we look at the second parable of this series, at least, in Luke 12. There's actually another one coming next week. But in the second parable, it begins with this in verse 22. And Jesus said to his disciples, now he had just taught these wealthy individuals who were arguing over their inheritance how to beware of all forms of greed because it'll kill you 
Always wanting what you don't have. Always wanting more than you, don't have, more than you have. It's going it's to wreck your life. But now his disciples, and as I think of the context, I can't say for sure, but my guess is the disciples, uh, you know, most of them, they were pretty much tracking with Jesus, carrying whatever they carried in the backpack on their back, and they didn't have a lot, at least especially most of them had left everything to follow Christ. So, so the point is, these guys are not fussing over an inheritance. They are not wealthy. And I think they're probably thinking, at least I would be, if I were one of Jesus' disciples, I'd be like, you know, man, I love, I love the way Jesus is putting these rich dudes in their place. You know, these greedy rich people. But Jesus knows their hearts as well, and he cares about them enough to deal with their heart issue. And their heart issue is very different. Listen to verse 22, and we'll launch into the passage. He says, And he said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. In other words, Jesus says, hey, look, my warning to you guys is quit worrying so much. You guys aren't dealing with greed so much right now, but your problem is worry. And that's just as destructive. You don't worry, and, and, he, and he deals with the necessities of life. He says, don't worry about what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear. Or having something to eat and something to wear. He's talking about the basics of food and clothing. He says, you guys are dealing with the essentials of life. In modern context, it's kind of like, don't worry so much about whether or not you can just pay the basic bills to survive. So he says, don't worry. And he, and he says, because you have, like them last week, you have misdefined life. The root issue that Jesus points out for them is this. Their definition of life was it's all about having more so that you're okay. It's all about having enough or having more so your bases are covered. You want to know that you've got something to eat, something to wear. You want to know that you've got a place to sleep tonight. You, you know, you're worried about the basics. And Jesus says, even there, don't worry. If the wealthy were dealing, dealing with greed... How do I get a big enough savings account so that I can retire early, eat, drink, and be merry? That was what was last week's problem. This week is a different problem. You and I may be able to, re you know, some of us could relate to last week for sure. Others of us can relate more to this week, right? Where the real issue is, I'm just not sure I can pay the bills. How am I going to take care of the basics of life? And Jesus said, as you deal with the basics of life, beware of the sin of worry of worry so let's read the solution because the good news is jesus didn't just say quit worrying you know because to be honest from my experience when i just try to suck it up and say i'm not going to worry so much what happens oh i'm not going to worry about uh, retirement i'm not going to worry about my kids college education i'm not going to worry about paying for the bill. I'm not going to worry about the mortgage. I'm not going to worry about the fact something's going to break. I'm not going to worry about and all of a sudden what happens. I worry more than before I started to tell myself I would not worry. In fact, I think sometimes when we pray incorrectly, we actually stir up our worries. Because you say, all right, we need to pray about all my problems, right? So I, be, I begin to think, okay, Lord, what do I want you to change and fix in my life? And I start working my way through, and I think about this and this and this and this and this. And by the time I tell God all my problems, I'm thinking, yeah, life really does suck, doesn't it? You know what I mean? You know, yeah. How, you know, you know, so the reality is, 
we need, to, we need to deal with this problem. And I love the fact that Jesus didn't just say, quit worrying. He said, let me help you with your worry. Here's my help for you. And Jesus gives solutions. I love it. Here we go. Here, what's the solution? Pick it up, verse 24. We're going to read the passage, and I'm going to back up and point out the solutions buried in this passage. Here we go. And Jesus said to his disciples, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about your food. Don't worry about your clothing. Verse 24, here's the solution. Number one, consider. That is, think about this. Put your mind on this. Consider the ravens. For they neither sow nor reap. They don't run a business. Nor do they have a storeroom or a barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying can add a single hour to his lifespan. If then you cannot even do a very little thing, why do you worry about the other matters? In other words, worry doesn't make you live longer. In fact, we know now medically, worry can actually raise your blood pressure, hurt your body, and shorten your life. So he says, don't do it, verse 27. And consider, there's the second thing, consider or set your mind on the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. They don't manufacture clothing. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory and wealth clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive one day today and tomorrow it's, it's thrown into the furnace and burned up, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? Underline that. We'll come back to that. And do you not seek what you so, so and do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink and do not keep worrying for all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek but your father another key phrase underline it your father knows that you need these things but here's the alternative seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which will not wear out. They tended to wear a money belt back then to carry their coins and their money to keep them safe. And he says, you know, money belts wear out. But he says, keep, make for yourselves money belts that don't wear out. They're eternal an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief can come near nor moth destroy. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what's the solution that Jesus is offering us? To too much worry, and I actually think that the principles he's teaching would apply to uh, last week's audience as well if they struggle with greed. In other words, how do we deal with our money matters our possessions in a way that we don't worry all the time or be greedy. Here are Jesus's solutions. I capture them in five questions that we need to answer maybe differently than we tend to. Here they are. I've given you the questions. Let me give you the answers if you want to write them down. Number one, what is life? What's real life? What's the essence of life? Is it temporal or is it eternal? Temporal or eternal? What are you living for? Jesus says in verse 31, 
the solution is seek first my kingdom and he says in the Sermon on the Mount which is another similar story he says seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be taken care of they'll be added unto you God knows your needs you keep your focus on his kingdom the things that are eternal things that last instead of things that can burn up in a fire in a heartbeat it's the same thing in 1st Timothy 6 10 that the love of money is the root of all kinds of problems in other words wanting it loving it not money but the love of money can get us in trouble my observation by the way about that and about this temporal versus eternal is this I can't just if I tell myself Dale don't love money don't love money I actually find myself loving money more anybody else ever experienced that I mean because I focus on it I think what Christ is saying is seek first the kingdom in other words you can't outrun the love of money but you can run to something better here is how I summarize it the secret to not loving money too much is to nurture a greater more enticing love that's the secret and by the way in 1st Timothy 6 which Ryan looked at yesterday it's a great passage to go back to um, it deals with these these principles of don't just say I'm not gonna love it not gonna love it not gonna love it instead well what are you gonna love because everyone is driven by something everyone is is passionate about something so the only way to not be inappropriately loving money too much is to fall in love with Jesus Christ the kingdom of God the glory of God and to be living for something that's more exciting than just having more stuff so you got to have something that you're running toward that is the kingdom of God instead of just running away from the love of money got it here we go number one what are you really living for what is real life is it temporal or eternal focus on the eternal number two where's real security found where do you really find security because most of us that's what's driving us we want to feel secure is it in our earthly possessions or is it in our heavenly provider is it in the pro, 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 possessions okay or the provider of those possessions several times throughout this parable Jesus says look your father knows your father knows your father cares so he points to the the provider of all that we have as the one we need to put our trust in in other words to say it another way the secret to not trusting too much in possessions is to place your trust in the provider of those very possessions in fact of everything we possess first Timothy 6 again says it as well when it says don't put your hope in riches but put it in the one who provides your riches whatever you have much or little provides those riches uh, and provides you with all things to enjoy so trust the provider not the provision that's the secret keep your eye on the father number three what's your real value he says part of the reasons you worry is you have forgotten that you are a beloved and redeemed child of God see I love the fact he points to the ravens and the lilies he's probably in that field he's looking around to the local things that they could all look at he uses them as object lessons and he says look look at the look at the ravens 
Now in Matthew chapter 6, he's in a different scenario. He says, look at the sparrows. Why does he change from raven to sparrow? Does anybody know? It's a deep theological reason. That's probably because in one story, he's in an area and he looks over in the field and there's a bunch of sparrows. In the next story, there's a bunch of ravens. It doesn't matter. It could be any bird. But the point is, they're both just common, everyday, you can't get rid of them, birds. Okay? He's not even saying, look at the beautiful parrots. You know, I didn't say that. You know, he's just in these common everyday birds, ravens, sparrows, they're everywhere in Israel. And he's looking and he says, oh, there's a bunch of ravens. There's a field of lilies. So he says, here's what they, look at those ravens. He says, you know, they, you know, God takes care of them. Your father takes care of them. And by the way, he calls him God the Father. In the Old Testament, they never referred to God as their father. He was their God. But Jesus begins teaching this to his disciples in the Lord's Prayer, where he says, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven. He's reinforcing this fact that you are not just a follower of God, you're not just a disciple of God, you're not just a, um, you know, a, 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 a um, part of the team, you are a part of the family. Yeah, he says, God is your Father. You're his child. He cares for those worthless little birds, well, all due respect to the bird lovers in the room, okay? Then how much more does he value you? If he cares for the grasses of the fields that are going to be one day beautiful, the next day they're going to dry up and you're going to burn them and get rid of them, he said, how much more valuable are you? That's the key word in the text, is our value to God the Father. When we really get a handle on, wow, by God's grace, I am totally forgiven, totally in Christ, made a child of God. I have value to God. Don't you think he's going to take care of you? What's your real value? Understand it. Number four, where's your real faith focused? It's fascinating to me that in verse 28, as he's teaching them, he slips in this little phrase at the end of verse 28. He says, how much more will the Father take care of you, clothe you, oh, you men of little faith? See, right in the text, there's the key. In other words, where's your faith? We all have faith in something. Every day you wake up and you got faith in something. You put your trust, that's what it means. Where's your trust focused? Your trust is focused on something. Your trust is focused on your ability to go out, compete, make a living, do the deal, feed your family, provide for everyone. You know, your, either, your trust is either in your finances or it could be in your Heavenly Father. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean that you stay home, decide not to have a job, and say, Lord, I'm trusting you. It's great to retire at age 29. Thank you that you've promised to provide for me like the lilies and the ravens. Don't do that. Because elsewhere in Scripture, it talks about if a man won't work, don't let him eat. Okay? Elsewhere in Scripture, it talks about diligence and hard work as honoring God. So yeah, you're going to get the best job you can. You're going to work, work hard at it. You'll do your very best at whatever job or career God provides. And you want to do it to the glory of God as a job, but also as a ministry, because that's where you're the representative of Jesus Christ. And as you do that, yeah, hopefully you get the promotion. Hopefully you get a raise. Nothing wrong with raises. Don't turn them down. 
just give more to Seacoast. <laughs> just, just kidding, but I, I thought Ryan wanted me to slip that in there, but I'm just, I'm just teasing. I know when I was a senior pastor, I appreciated that. But, you know, but the bottom line is, yeah, work hard, make all you can, let God bless you to whatever level he blesses you. It'll be different for every person. But in the midst of it all, where's your trust? Where's your faith? What makes you feel secure that I'm going to be okay even when the fire wipes out everything? You put your faith in God, not your possessions. Little side note, by the way, about Carl and Castine from up in Santa Rosa. They also shared with us how this past, uh, what was it, it had been eight, ten, ten months, I guess, since the fire. They've seen God provide for them. It's hard, it's painful. They wouldn't deny that. They're still grieving, and that's healthy. Nothing wrong with that. But they've seen God provide. For example, they moved into, they were able to find a house that they could, they could uh, uh, actually they bought it. They bought another house temporarily to move into until they could get theirs rebuilt. And, but the, the house is like totally empty, right? Except for what they camp with. So they thought, we'll just have to be camping in our house. You know, where are we going to put the sleeping bags? And God provided this lady who was an interior decorator who had such compassion for the people losing their homes, she volunteered her services. And instead of just loading up their house with giveaway furniture, because a lot of people were donating furniture for the tragic things up there, Seacoast shipped a bunch of stuff up to Santa Rosa. Remember that last year? After the fires. That was part of what we did. So that was very cool. Um, you know, but here's what actually happened. This interior decorator actually said, you know, I don't want to just fill your house with furniture. I'm going to volunteer my time. She met with Castine, the wife, because the husband's opinion does not matter. And <laughs> if you've not figured that out yet, you, you should get up to speed on that, guys, right? So, guys, when your wife is trying to decide how to decorate the room, your answer is always what? Yes, dear. dear. Yes, dear. And then after it's done and she says, what do you think? Your answer is love it. God forgives those little lives. No. But here's the cool thing. This, in, this professional interior decorator actually met with her and she said, you know, we got a warehouse filling up with donated stuff. But what, how do you like to decorate? And she actually, this decorator, goes through the warehouse and picks out the kinds of stuff that they like and actually decorated their new home with other people's giveaways. But she said, wow. In some cases, it looked nicer than what burned up. So it's just amazing how God has provided through the generosity of people and of their church and what that's done in their life. But yeah, it's still painful. That's why you put your faith not in your finances, your possessions, but in your Father. Number five, last but not least of the questions. What do you fear? Because actually, worry is a form of fear, by the way, write that down. Worry is a form of fear. Do you fear the shortfall of your income or the shortage of your impact in your life? Most of us fear the, the shortage of income. Uh, what if I don't have enough, right? 
But do we ever think about the shortage of our impact to the kingdom of God? That our greatest fear in life should be to die someday, stand before God the Father, and say, you know, I just didn't make a difference for the kingdom. Well, I lived and consumed and enjoyed life, and I did church, and I worshiped, and now I'm in heaven. You think, yeah, but where is my impact of my life? See, that's worth, you might say, worrying about, in quotes. So what can we do to get started uh, combating our greed and our worry, especially the worry side over money? I think, well, the first thing is this week, my challenge to you is to process these five questions. Um, if you're single, do it with your roommates or your best friends. If you're married, do it with your spouse. Talk through these five questions in the outline. Um, but then if you want to get started, Jesus, toward the end of this passage, actually gives four commands that are just kind of like a jump start, okay? So how do you jump start? And here they are. Number one, adjust your priorities more toward the kingdom. Live for a greater cause, the kingdom of God. Ask yourself, how can we put more of our, not just money, but time, money, gifts, abilities, how can, how can we put more of that toward the kingdom of God? For example, Seacoast is going to be launching a new service, September 16th, to reach our city. That's a great opportunity to say, you know something, I'm going to up my commitment to give my time and or money to help make that happen. So look for ways. How can I invest my life for maximum kingdom impact to the glory of God? It'll be different for every one of us, but ask that question and answer it. Number two, focus your trust on the provider, not the provision. On the provider, not the provision. You know, one way that Becky and I work on this part, in our life at least, is, you know, we decide that if our trust is in the provider, not our provisions, then we, we combine this one with the next one, which is to give generously. Simplify life and sacrifice and give more for the kingdom of God. Because if my, if my trust is in the provider, God the Father, then my, our number one priority since the day we were married, 1974, and before that, our number one priority is to give a tenth of all that God blesses us with to the kingdom of God, most of it to our local church. And then beyond that, as God blessed us over the years and enabled us to, we were able by his grace to increase that to a higher percentage. But the point is, set a percentage goal, but here's the key thing. If your trust is in the provider, not your provision, you don't write that check at the end of the month after every other bill's paid to see if you got something left. It's the first check we write per month. And then we adjust and live off of what's left. And you think, wow, Dale, that would be radical. Trust God and try it. And see if he doesn't meet your needs. That's my challenge. He loves you no matter what you do. But it's a great way to build your faith. To focus your faith. Give generously. And last but not least, he says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And the point of that is, watch your heart. Now, I, my first draft of the sermon, um, I had um, transform your heart. 
and I changed it because of some input from our teaching team as we interacted over this. Uh, and the point is this passage, it doesn't say that I try to transform my heart. What I do is I give more generously to the kingdom of God, giving both my time, my talents, and my money. And as I give more, he says, for where your treasure is, your heart will follow it. In other words, I don't try to make my heart uh, love money less and love God more. I just put more of my money into the kingdom of God and my time into the kingdom of God. And as I do that, guess what? My heart grows related to kingdom things. I mean, it's a, it's a simple principle. Where you have invested, you care more. Period. Becky and I, two years ago, decided to become part-time with Seacoast in order to give um, the bulk of our other time toward training pastors in Africa. And once we've been doing that since 2004 now, uh, on a part-time basis, and now much more since 2016, a part of that with your generous help, by the way, is we're missionaries of your church as well as a pastor, but now our heart is growing for Africa. We love Africa. We bleed for African pastors and their spouses and their problems because we go there and we see it and we, and we give to it and we're involved in it. You know, my point is this. Wherever your investment is, your heart grows. If your investment is only in the stock market, you know what? Your heart will always beat for the stock market. Oh, I hope it goes up more, you know. If it doesn't go up, you worry as if it's never gone down before. Watch your heart. It will follow your investments. I mentioned uh, that Becky and I have the privilege of visiting pastors who are DTS alumni, Dallas Seminary alumni. I started the sermon with one story. I want to conclude with another one because uh, I met a man, 89 years old, Here's his picture. I'm not going to give you his name because of, I want to respect his privacy, although he did give me permission to share his story. I'll call him Joe. Um, Joe graduated from Dallas Seminary in 1956. That's a picture of him and his wife while in seminary uh, as young students. He came out of there, he worked at a church in Van Nuys for a while, and then he uh, took a church plant in Reseda, California. Pretty tough neighborhood, actually, that he was in. But he grew his church in Reseda, pastored it for 33 years, and then retired. I asked Joe, I said, so Joe, what's life like for an 89-year-old guy today? Because he had told me his wife had passed away three years ago after nine years with Alzheimer's, where he cared for her, and he pointed to their bedroom and said, right in that bed, I cared for her. And he was thankful. He was joyful. Didn't have to put her in a hospital. So his life hadn't been easy. But Joe, I said, Joe, what's your life like? And he said, well, every morning I study my Bible. And in fact, I don't just study it. I translate a chapter of the New Testament. Um, Ryan loves the Greek language more than I do, by the way. We both love it, but he's good at it. I'm not. So, but this guy is really good at it, Ryan. Ever since the day he came out of seminary, he translates a chapter a day. 
out of the Greek New Testament and studies it. And he said, I said, can I see your New Testament? He, he took, we went into his little office and took, took this picture. That's it, laying there. 20 pages have fallen out. He loves God's word. This guy was so joyful. He just seemed happier than anybody I had met in years. Dave lived not in a high-priced neighborhood. In fact, here's his house. It's a double-wide double wide mobile home. Um, probably built in the 60s, 70s in an older neighborhood of similar homes. But he loves his house. It's a simple house. Um, you know, as I uh, looked around, it, it looked like it was just the way his wife had decorated it in 1970. You know what I mean? Clean, nice, but a little older. I offered to show Joe, we'll call him Joe, I offered to show Joe some uh, pictures of Dallas Seminary. I said, if we can go online, and he says, oh, he says, don't have a cell phone, don't have a computer, never really felt I needed one. He has no cell phone, no computer, lives in this home. I said, so Joe, tell me about your family. How can I pray for your family? And he says, well, Dale, we never were blessed with children, so we didn't have children. So I'm my last living heir. He says, but I'll show you my banana tree. And he goes out front and shows me this new tree. He had planted his own banana tree. And, and if you look real close, there's a cluster. He says, I'm about to get my first banana harvest. I said, can I take a picture? Yes, I'm taking pictures of Joe. But then we went back in Joe's house, and it ended with kind of a surprise. I said, so Joe, how can I pray for you? And he says, you know something? I got nothing to need. I got no needs. He says, I study my Bible. I visit twice a week the old folks' home. Do you hear the irony in that? At 89, he's visiting the old folks' home to share Christ and lead them in worship. And he teaches Sunday school in his church. He says, but I realize at 89, I don't have too many more years left. And then without me asking, he said, but you know something? I got everything planned for when I'm gone. He said, uh, I got a will. And he starts telling me where his money's going. He starts telling me, we, I'm going to be able, when I pass away, he's smiling. I'm going to give this much to my church and this much to my mission organization and this much I'm going to give to Dallas Seminary. And I said, do they know that? And he said, nope. They'll find out when, when I'm gone. They may have to wait a few years, though. So I did the math. Uh, Joe's excited when he dies. He's going to be giving away about $2 million. Joe's 89 years old, has two million bucks in the bank, and he loves his simple home, doesn't have a flat screen TV, doesn't have a computer, but he has more joy and more contentment and more happiness and more, he's excited about, wow, Dale, you know, when I'm gone, I'm going to be able to make an impact for the kingdom of God. Somehow, I think that someday in heaven, I'm going to clean his floors. I'll clean his floors and enjoy getting to know him better. Joe's a great example for all of us. It doesn't mean you have to live in a mobile home. It doesn't mean you can't have a flat screen TV or a computer or a smartphone. I got all of that, okay? But what it means is, where's your heart? 
Where's your heart? If you want to get your money matters under control, start with the heart. Father God, thank you for what you've taught us from your word. Thank you for the wisdom of it. Help us, uh, help us Father, to trust you, appreciate you, give thanks to you, serve and invest in your kingdom, and not just try to build our own. We thank you that as we do that, you can use us as a church to impact Encinitas and the coast, north coast area, and even to the ends of the earth in Africa. We can make a difference. So may you use the advice of Jesus to help stomp out the worries that we often have. In Christ's name, amen.